Thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy. Our uh, lovely co-host, Carla Jo Helms, is off today. Um, but we are still the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. And today we'll be talking about marketing to a semi-commodity or a commodity, uh, either or, with uh, Amir Bormand. Uh, Amir is the co-founder of Elevano, a California-based recruitment company who helps hundreds of people find more fulfilling jobs every year. Amir is unique to the recruiting industry because he's a former engineer himself and could still uh, write a couple lines of code if he needed to. When he's not working, Amir enjoys spending time with his uh, family and traveling. Uh, he and his wife have a five-year-old daughter who keeps him busy with the latest uh, trends in Disney cartoons. Love that. I have a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old myself. And uh, you might just catch him humming Disney movie theme songs around, around the office. <laughs> Fantastic, Amir. We're uh, super excited to have you on. I love this subject matter. Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so um, I, I started my career um, in the engineering space. Um, software engineering got into business intelligence, um, uh, got into the sales side as a, as a as a practice, uh, BI practice uh, manager, and at some point got the bug to want to start something on my own. So uh, branched off and and got into you know consulting in the sec- segment that I understood. And um, at some point, we just evolved into a recruiting company. We had uh, some interesting requests come in, and and it kind of just took a life of its own. And you know, uh, I had never thought about getting into recruiting, but. Um, yeah, you know, took us a little bit of time. Obviously, zero experience. You gotta gotta learn a little bit on the job. But now that we we have, um, I think we have our own perspective and our own differentiation. And and I think what's interesting is coming into an industry with no experience, you have no preconceived notions. And uh, I just approached it from the standpoint of I I knew what I didn't like being recruited. Um, and I figured if we could provide a service that was the that was the opposite of that. So if I would like that service uh, when I was an engineer, then I I feel pretty comfortable with what we're we're trying to accomplish. Nice. So you kind of uh, the the origin of the business is kind of find of a need and fill it type thing. Yeah, I, th- I think it was. You know, we had a client. We'd finished a BI project, and um, and and they basically were like, you know, we need somebody, and and we were clueless as to what recruiting was. I you know again dealt with recruiters. I I'd, I'd use people to to hire um, for, you know, as a hiring manager, but I never actually held the role um, of any significance. So we kind of ended up saying yes. And uh, through, through that, we, we kind of just learned that it's a different form of delivery. And I think, you know, having worn project manager hats, you know, being a scrum master, a business analyst, I realized that it's nothing but self-contained projects and it kind of all lent itself pretty well. It just was kind of learning the ins and outs of the particular job itself. Yeah. I feel like everybody wants you, your PR company will tell you, they all want you to have some sort of fantastical origin story to your company. But most stories, my story, they, they come out of necessity. The company start because, you know, when you're a talented person and you get posed with a job where somebody says they'll pay you for it, um, then you figure out how to do that and you figure out how to do it really well uh, versus, you know, some sort of ordained from birth or the one I love hearing as, uh, and I never believe it. I hate it. I'm sure it happens sometimes. I never believe it. The story of like, oh, me and my friend had a really bad experience with XYZ. And so we started, decided to start a company like, oh, me and my friend had a really bad experience buying a quality watch. So we started this 
high-end watch company. No, you didn't, man. That's I God, I hope that didn't happen. You weren't so <laughs> much dorm room saying, we can't get quality watch. Or, you know, we had a bad experience with a blind company. I'm like, college students don't have bad experiences with blind companies. I'm sorry. Exactly. But, <laughs> no, I, I agree. Like, you know, you know, the, the origin story turns out to be more significant the bigger your company. So obviously, if it takes on a mythical proportion, I mean, we could talk about you know, Mark Zuckerberg and his origin story. Obviously, if, if he was a five-person company, you kind of would go, all right, it was some, some need and some business. It just, you know, you, you hit whatever scale you could hit. But um, yeah, I, I, we just kind of got to the point where we were, I was comfortable with doing BI consulting. And um, the light bulb went on when we collected our first fee, the light bulb went on. We were like, so I am delivering a solution where I'm not responsible for the acceptance of the project. And that was kind of new to me. I, 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 I had only had operated in the space of, you know, I have to deliver the project. I have to be successful. The client has to sign off. They have to approve hours and, and being able to bill. And we went to, that was no longer the requirement. It was just hiring someone. And it was kind of was an interesting, you know, business model. And in my view is like, you know, we're, my view of the business is I, I, I still want to get back to approaching this industry as I'm almost like a consulting company to my clients. I, I want, I'm, I'm a consultant underneath the hood. I enjoy consulting. I like solving business problems. And I think human capital, talent management, it's all just a different form, a, a, you know, a different solution. I was so I think, say what you've done here is solving problems though. I mean, I guess exactly. it's all stories for companies, but then there's the just, you got a problem that put in front of you. It was interesting to you. And then, and you started solving it and it just becomes, you just end up going down that path. Um, there's nothing wrong with that origin story for a company of, hey, I'm really good at solving problems. And somebody gave me one and I solved the shit out of it. All right. Exactly. <laughs> we just, we just, yeah. If it would have been something else, we probably, we, we might have taken that up and, and we'd have pivoted into something else. And, you know, it, it is, it is kind of where you lead. And I think uh, it's, it's, in, yeah, it's, it's an interesting industry. I really like it. Like there's some, there's some facets of it that, you know, you kind of want to tackle and there's some things that you in every industry find that you like and dislike and, and you find passions and how you want to uh, make an impact if possible. So I think those are all things that are on the horizon. And um, yeah, I mean, I still think about, you know, BI solutions when we get a data role, I'm always like, Oh, let me talk to the manager. It gives me a little chance to uh, geek out on, on some uh, data talk, but uh, yeah, that'll be the end of that. So I've got a, a little bit of a tangent here, and I swear sure. for the listeners, we will get to the kind of ins and outs of marketing this, uh, this commodity product. Um, but recruiting industry, I've had this thought for a while um, that I really wish a recruiting company would form itself in the way um, that agents do for professional athletes, um, it, you know, for particular talent positions, for developers, stuff like that. Um, it seems like you could have an agency that represents these people because one of the problems in the for, for workers is, you know, many people, they don't know how to ask for a raise. They don't know how to get the promotion properly. If they had an agent that would handle that for them, they'd probably make more money and the agent would make money also and they'd do better in their career because, you know, their job is being a developer, not negotiating office politics and moving up through the ranks and stuff. Just let them focus on their job and not be handling all the negotiations and whatnot, and also make sure that they're in the right space so you don't have a highly talented developer that gets stuck somewhere just because they don't know there's better options out there. It, it seems like it would do 
well for everybody. Maybe the companies wouldn't like it so much. <laughs> it's kind of like That's a weird. centralized union almost. Yeah. I, you know, so there there were concepts to this effect in the Bay Area, and there still is, of, of, of talent agents working for developers and high-end engineers. Um, I, I think the challenge is, is that um, there isn't a notion of exclusivity. So there's different types of recruiting. So obviously you can have, you know, retained search where you're you're hired to find a particular person and you're going to build deeper relationships with your candidates and they might turn to you for that kind of advice a contingent search where it's like hey everyone's kind of you know competing for the same candidate pool you just can't get that deep because the business model doesn't allow for it. and that's kind of that's kind of the unfortunate the middle ground would be is exclusive contingent where it's like hey we want you to hire us this this developer and then you can actually then go to market, talk to developers and be like, look, we're, we're actually exclusively marketing. I mean, Hired.com does something similar, but again, it, it's, a, it's, it's quite not exactly that because they're just still the middleman. It's still not getting, you know, they're hoping the algorithm is going to figure somebody out to, to market them. But I think what you're talking about, maybe year one would work. I think uh, a company would have a difficult time wanting to pay a recruiter or an agent a fee on top right. and then... Whether or not like a union, talent they like they they don't want to negotiate with a professional negotiator. They not at all. That's that, that'd be the worst. Much thing. rather negotiate just with with you know with somebody in marketing. Yes, we're hiring a VP of marketing. We yeah. need some lawyer coming in and uh, putting this you know the screws yeah. to us. I I. <laughs> I mean, I think in hindsight, like, you know, when I was you know, working, I wanted to raise it. It'd be fantastic to know that I had somebody representing me because it, it kind of puts an insulation around you and, and the other yeah. person uh, in that, you know, avoids a contention. But I think, um, I think it get awfully difficult to have, you know, that, that performance review and, and be like, all right, well, there's my, and now talk to my agent to negotiate yeah, salary. To be there for you. Yeah. For the performance review, you're like, I'm taking the fifth agent's going to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because I make maybe for the top, like if you're working for Google and Apple and special projects and R and D where it's like, these guys are taking, you know, a million, $2 million base salaries type of thing. I mean, those guys probably do have a layer of insulation. Um, and again, I think it says the more in demand, uh, the skill set, yeah. the more exclusive the skill set, probably the more nuances and more back and forth. Whereas a standard developer, you know, maybe they go, yeah, we'll do it. Or in the middle of it, get out of here. I'm just going to find another engineer to come in. Yeah, we're not going to hassle with this. We're not going to bother with yeah. it. So, yeah. 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 I thought it would have to be an exclusive uh, job type, basically, where you could grab, you know, a significant portion of the people out there and just start representing them. And then people had to work with you kind of. It's, uh, there's a lot of flaws in it, but I just love the idea of people not having to negotiate all the stuff that isn't their career. That's not what they're designed to do. And you see people who are professionals at office politics and they move up through companies. You're like, oh, they're not really any good at what they do. What they're good at is the moving up through the company part. That should be their job title. Um, and they, you know, <laughs> the people who sometimes are really good don't get identified or maybe not as much as they should or um, kind of nurtured as much. Anyway, that was my, my thought on the, on the recruiting industry. Uh, don't, don't want to burn up too much time here with that. Well, actually, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good, interesting segue uh, when you mention like exclusive. So I think the one thing that, that, that's interesting about the recruiting is when we're talking about like commodity, semi-commodity services, um, <clears throat> the problem is 
Yep. I um, you froze on me at the problem. Possibly is. the value add. Hold on one second. Uh, oh. Can we cut back to the problem? Is that yeah, your, yeah, um, yeah. The, the problem is connections cutting in and out. I think the video is frozen right now. Hmm. Yeah. Odd. That's odd. Yeah, it looks. I have uh, full strength. I'm not sure why we're freezing here. Um, is it coming through now or? I see a still image and the audio is fine, so we're good. Um, again, it was right at the problem is. Okay. Uh, let me let me just see if it's me or you. Just uh, yeah, uh, I, I I see you, and the sound looks fantastic. I'm not sure why I'm frozen. You're right, I'm frozen. Yeah, it's okay. Okay, all right. At least you're not frozen with one eye half open. Exactly. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> uh, I don't have that drunk look on uh, camera. <laughs> um, yeah. So the the problem is is that. I think when when companies are deciding between different agencies, um, a lot of it's predicated on they're all going to go chase this opportunity down, especially if it's contingent. There's no exclusivity. There's no retain. They're going to go compete on speed. They're going to bring whoever they can get to, and and they'll they'll all get to different people, right? You're saying in that in that business, companies will go out and hire multiple agencies to recruit for them. So you might be trying to recruit the same people, even. Yeah, so 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 in recruitment, you might have a situation where where it's very common where uh, there's an engineering role that they are looking to hire for, and um, they might be working with, they bring on one vendor, they might or not be delivering fast enough. They bring on a second, a third, whatever it is. They might have four vendors on staff, and they offer the role to all of them. Um, that is one one business model. Sometimes there's engagements where they will say, hey, what are you really good at? We're going to focus on having you work on these roles. So there's less competition. So when, when the competition exists, obviously there's some, there's some dynamics of speed involved versus quality. Um, and, and that makes it a little bit challenging. So when you're talking about exclusive, you know, I think, I think when there's exclusive, you can go deep and you can, and you can really you know, exemplify your understanding of the market, your understanding to the candidates, the, the, the job specs, and, and you're not focused on, there's two other agencies that are also trying to get to those same people. And it's, it's just not a race. So I think we're, we're moving much more towards, if you want to work with us, we want to see if there's an opportunity to work exclusively on this role, or at least for a period of time. Like we'd like to have at least 30 to 45 days where we're doing this on our own so that um, we're really just doing the best we can. You know, again, I, I, project management you know, fundamentals, time, scope, budget. You can either have a good, fast, or, uh, or cheap. You can pick, pick any of those examples. And, and really, it's you can have two of the three. And, and then you have people compete on speed. That's what you're choosing, right? right. So I think, I think that's kind of my, my philosophy is like when you see this environment of people view you as commodity, how do you change the game? How do you shift the conversations to showing them why you have expertise in the industry and why you might be worth, you know, not not being viewed as that commodity entity. Yeah, the commodity. I guess I hadn't thought about it when I was going on the the, the tangent on my idea of recruiting and, and agents. But uh, that really is, if there was a recruiting agency that was looking for, or I don't even know if you call it recruiting at that point, um, that was looking for a way to not be a commodity. It, there's a lot of reasons it wouldn't work, but you definitely wouldn't be a commodity since you'd be the only one doing it that way. <laughs> Maybe a good reason you're the only one doing it that way. But so I've seen this thing in, in, in business where, and I'm sure people, you know, uh, learned business people probably have a name for it or whatnot, but companies or business types seem to commoditize over time. 
yep. eventually they everybody gets good enough at something the technology puts everybody on kind of the same playing field there's no new things people are really coming out with within industry and then it becomes a commodity when we got into data um, we had email addresses and nobody else did it was crazy it was, you know, having a product like that when no one else does, it's, you know, um, a, a huge advantage, but then everyone catches up and it becomes a commodity really fast. Um, so I guess, you know, most things start out not a commodity, but then they become a commodity over time. You have brands that are locked in. So do you have any, you're coming into a space that's been around a long time um, and you're having to compete with a commodity product where, like you said, you can compete on what price, time, and and quality but even when you talk quality you can say you're the best but nobody knows until after they've been sold on it already um, so it's really hard to you can sell the quality aspect but yeah. you don't really have a show me kind of of that so I, I i think i think that 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 is available now so maybe a decade ago five years ago that would be a challenge right so if you're going to somebody who's about references show me the references let me talk to somebody who's experienced it but i think the notion i mean more than that i mean a decade plus now i mean yelp has shown us that people will turn to a repository turn to a story that's out there a narrative that t explains to how your past performance has been and we make decisions on that past performance that's how we that's how we operate as humans i want to go talk to somebody who's tried this or I want to talk to references to validate if the product or service is good. So I think now there are those mechanisms out there. So while I do think there is commoditization does happen, I do think two factors work really well in this, in this case. I think one specialization. So I do think the deeper you get in whatever segment you're working in, you're going to have a platform to talk about whatever that field is at an expert level and people in the field will know if you are talking at an expert level that will resonate people will nod their heads going oh this guy he actually gets it he's not talking at that one inch depth and and, and he's just you know some marketing speak he gets the fundamentals of what we're doing he didn't just google this yeah he didn't google it he didn't spend an hour listening to a youtube video watching a youtube video to bone up he gets the fundamentals of what makes this industry or this this product or service tick and then secondly is there's, I mean, like your podcast, there's, there's so much media that you can control and, and put out there to exemplify expertise, white papers, blogs, uh, you know, posting to Medium, LinkedIn. So, you know, I, I think all right. those tools that weren't available and it was basically like you had to put a brochure together old school, mail it out or download a PDF. I think there's so much at our disposal to actually have people sample quality before I, I think that's that's where you differentiate right. and it's hard not everyone's going to do it yeah you have your content but then i guess you have your content and then you have your brand and those i mean they kind of work together to to show the quality i guess in a commodity you have a history of quality that is your brand um you know your content your references that kind of stuff feeds into that and that's that's really what you have when when you have a commodity like this yeah, capture, capture, like, I mean, we're a big believer of, um, I, I favor actually Google reviews over LinkedIn reviews and recommendations at this point as an organization. Um, I do like LinkedIn recommendations. They're nice. Uh, people go there and look. You won't turn them down. Yeah, I won't turn them down. But to me, Google reviews are amazing because if somebody, and, and what's funny is if you look at the you know, metrics from search results that you're, you're, you're pouring over through 
uh, various reports you'll get. Um, a lot of people go to elevano.com through their search bar. Like they won't add the .com. It's, it's interesting that people will go Elevano search on Google. They will not go elevano.com because it's probably just easier for them to click on the link versus typing out the .com. And what comes up if you have Google that's, review. That's a weird version of lazy where you're actually putting out more effort to be lazy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I found myself doing that sometimes and I'm like, I'm here why don't you just add the .com? And I'm like, well, what if it wasn't a .com? <laughs> oh, it could be a .net, net .io. Yeah, yeah, it could be like, you know, Elevano, something, something .com, and I just don't know. So I, I think a lot of people do that. And the first thing that comes up when you type in Elevano is our, my, my, our Google business page will come up to the right with reviews. So it's right there. It's prevalent. It shows we have X amount of reviews, the quality, and and that becomes to me a super differentiator. Well, if you're on, if you're searching, I'm sure Google reviews are better because Google controls it. They're going to give themselves top billing every time. Um, and it's authenticated. It's validated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, same as LinkedIn as well. But I, I think with LinkedIn, obviously the recommendations are, I, I, we, we haven't really focused on it, like I said, but I think the recommendations are there. I don't know if they come up in search. Right. Um, they're not as embeddable. Like we actually post ours on our webpage. Our Google reviews show up in a in a WordPress plugin that pops them up on our website. So we like that. Where we couldn't do that on LinkedIn. So we kind of were like, it, it, to me, it doesn't matter what platform you catch them, capture them on. I think a lot of times when you see them on home pages and they're talking about, you know, this vice president at this company left a review. What does that mean? There's no validation. I want to see that it was a real human, and I can only see it if it's oh, right, on. Right that platform. So to me, Google reviews, A, it's not going away anytime soon. Maybe, I mean, Google does kill off. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a big component of their search. And, and I think, you know, for us, that just is an important piece. So yeah, I think like that, when you say, I want to see references, a lot of times we're going to clients, they go, we want to talk to three references. I'm like, before you ask to speak to my references, look at the hundred and some reviews that are all favorable if that's not good enough, I mean, we also capture them on Trustpilot. We capture them on Facebook. If those aren't good, if you still don't think we're not providing a, a decent service, then let's set up a call with the reference. Because obviously, when was the last time you ever set someone up with a bad reference anyways? Like, you right. know the reference is going to give you something favorable. But I'm saying, look at all the population of people, you know, three people I control and pick versus, you know, 140, 150 reviews out there that are people that have already used the service and you can kind of scroll through as many as you like. Right. People are giving out the uh, Donald Trump references. You call it up and you're like, wait, this sounds like the same guy. Wait, wait a second. He's uh, he's having me call himself for a reference and just using a different name or something. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought about the, uh, you know, really put having the, the reviews, the references on your website, the reviews on your website is just kind of a version of saying, trust me. Because it's the yeah, same thing. You put a name up there and stuff, but unless it's Mark Zuckerberg, uh, we probably don't know who that person is. It doesn't have the same validation that you, they know you put it on the site, not that person. Whereas in, in Google and LinkedIn, the reviews, the person has to actually put it there. Absolutely. And I think that's where um, when you mentioned the differentiation between a commodity service, I think the differentiation goes back to expertise. How do you define expertise, right? What is a brand? Uh, people people trust in the brand. People know the brand. People know that it does X, Y, Z, and they turn to it for that reason. So I think a lot of this is built on the back of expertise 
and to establish that expertise, you need other people to talk about it. So you talking about it's fantastic, but if somebody else hasn't validated it, then, then it's not expertise. And people go, you know, say that they're thought leaders. If somebody else calls you a thought leader and other people <laughs> validate you're a thought leader and, and, and there's people out there that quote that, then you're th- if you're calling yourself a thought leader, unless you've really been validated for that purpose, yeah. then it's hard to kind of digest, right? So if you've got a group of people and you say, who's a thought leader? And some people raise their hands and some people point at someone else. You know who's the real thought leaders in the room, the people getting pointed at, not raising the hands. Exactly. I, 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 you know, I, I think that this is how this society has, I think society has always operated this way. I think before even Yelp reviews, if you want a dentist, probably, you know, in the 80s, my dad and my mom probably would have gone, hey, you know, Sue or Mark or Helen, do you know a good dentist close by that you trust? They mm-hmm. would say, yes, this. And that would be a sample, very small sample size. You might ask the second person. But at least you wanted to know, do they know someone that they, they're happy with? And again, like you said, happy with their past performance. And that was the, what we used. And now we have, you cannot do work. You cannot, I mean, it's almost impossible to be like a, a consumer facing business and not have reviews somewhere good or bad. Right. But and then, if you're, if you're not controlling that narrative, you're in trouble. Right. On the B2B side. And then when you get down to commodity, um, a lot of these companies, you aren't, there's no geographical restriction. So it isn't like if you're a pizza shop, people only have so many options in your neighborhood. And so if, if you're the one in the neighborhood, you're good. A lot of B2B companies are, you know, their reach goes pretty much anywhere. They're not, they're not restricted to neighborhoods. So you really have this, you're competing against everybody at, at the same time. And when you do have that commodity product without, you know, like you said, some sort of thought leadership, some sort of expertise, some uh, brand, uh, you know, a, a history of quality with, um, with, with reviews to prove it and that kind of stuff. You really are just kind of floating around out there randomly hoping to run into stuff or I guess competing on price alone. Let me ask you this. What's not commodity? So let's let's actually have an interesting conversation. <laughs> and I and I always I always bring this up is what's not commodity? Like there's yeah, there's very few things that I could even when we talk think about not commodity and we go, you know what, NASA is a pretty unique organization. And guess what? In the last twenty years, SpaceX Jeff Bezos's company and a couple others, Virgin, you know, their, their, Richard Branson's you know, space uh, initiative. There's now multiple other companies that have come into that environment that have competing technology. And obviously, very few are as big as governmental-backed space programs. But even in that industry, you could argue that was what, what was once controlled by few is now having entrants coming into the market space because the capital, the technology is caught up. I don't know what isn't commodity anymore. I believe, to me, philosophically, there's competition for every product that exists out there. Whether I guess I would say, um, when I when I think of commodities, what I think of is you could say uh, Google's not a commodity. Well, it just doesn't have big competition. Is all it's got a lock on the marketplace. There's a difference. It doesn't really have anything that prevents somebody else other than that dominant stance from coming in, but short of a patent or some sort of a formula that no one else knows, you know, Coke There's very few of those. Yeah. You could say Coke has, has its formula yet. There's Pepsi. It's extremely similar. Absolutely. (laughs) And you know what though, with that patent LaCroix and other, you know, you know, water 
sparkling water canned beverages come out, flavored water beverages have come out, and and they're competing in that same market space of sodas, but but now with their own differentiation of hey, we're we're sugar free, we're calorie free, blah blah blah. Even in that market space, but I I agree with you. Like if you're really going to look at what's not commodity, it's it's probably a very finite number of products or services that really have no alternative, a, a valuable alternative. Well, you see a lot of companies, something that I see as a practice, and maybe this is one of the things a company can do that that is a, you know, maybe I'd say a high level commodity because uh, I wouldn't say that nothing's a commodity, but I wouldn't say everything's a commodity. It's kind of a scale. Some things sure. are more commoditized than others. Um, they seem to invent features that don't really matter, but they can sell. And that's, that's a technique you see all the time where you're like, oh, that's, they're pushing this thing. You know, they did, they put something different in the, now the cheese in the crust is this type of cheese or, you know, you just keep coming up with something different. Here's a feature that our thing offers and you look at it and you're like, well, that doesn't, you don't really give a crap about that, but it gives them something to push so they can say, look, we're different. We're different. We have, we have a new this, we have a new that. Um, you look at, again, I hate talking about consumer stuff too much but you see it a lot in the diet industry and in a lot of industries where things people kind of know what it takes. They just don't like to do it. Um, so they keep coming out with a new thing and a new thing. And you feel like sometimes people are inventing new ways of doing stuff just because it's time for them to write another book. And so they can't write the same book again. They already said, here's how you do it. Now there has to be a different way of how to do it. So it's almost like they're circling around like, um, so that they can keep coming out with something new. So they have something to say, hey, look, this is new. It's the same stuff recycled around or they're making up things that don't really matter. Once something becomes a commodity, I guess I'd say, it seems like you rarely see an innovation that really takes it out of commodity status. That's like, oh, wow, this is actually something new. You know, we saw it with phones, with the smartphone, with the iPhone. It had been quite a while before eh, cordless phones and you had these little differences and this little thing here and there. And then suddenly, boom this explosion and, and, and new stuff. Um, but things seem to stick for a while. They'll, they'll, they'll really stick. I guess the large brands are just holding on to their position. You hear a lot about stifling innovation because once they get big, they're that's like, a lot hey, of IP. Money. I mean, yeah, that's patent, patentable stuff like that where, you know, Samsung, you know, could not manage to get around the patent of the, how the swiping on an iPhone works. And that to me is first mover, they invented it, they patent it, and they reap the benefits because of, and, and a very good market, right? So strategy, they, they built a platform, an ecosystem where once you're in and, and, and there's producers for that ecosystem, you don't necessarily need to leave unless there's a viable alternative. And yet they had this patent on how the UI with, with the swiping and, and touch works. So, you know, to their benefit, they, they, they knew where the technology was going they invested heavily. They came up with, you know, and, and that to me is very difficult to compete with unless you're, you know, hiring some really bright scientists and engineers to come up with a brand new innovation, but their patent could be under, I mean, the whole product, the whole ecosystem could be under threat as soon as somebody comes up with a, an ability to flash a holographic phone and interact with it one day. Who knows? Right. So that's just R and D and innovate. It's kind of another way out of yeah. the, the commodity issue for marketing. Yeah. You're, actually come up with a real valuable new feature or new way of doing something or something of value for the customer or make something up that can be perceived as it and mark that market that even if it is just kind of a, a frill. Um, There's different strategies to it. I think, I, I think when it comes to like services, um, 
I I think what the challenge is is in the service industry is people tend to take on multiple services and not stay in their lane to develop expertise and depth. And and so then they're competing on seven, eight, 10, 12 different fronts. And it's very difficult to, to market yourself as an expert in that many different areas, industries, segments, right. right? Unless you genuinely are. But even let's say for us, we do tech recruiting and we operate within you know seven, eight different stacks, verticals of technology. It becomes difficult. Like we can maybe you know, really be experts in a couple. And then we also work in others that we're effective in. But I'd say our expertise maybe lies in a subset. And, and as a company, we're actually, you know, and probably in the last three to four weeks, we've been having discussions internal in terms of how can we specialize more? What areas should we drop and exclusively focus on what we do best? And then build content, stories, reviews around those areas that we know a will resonate loudest with our market and b before we get on the phone whoever we're talking to the hr person talent acquisition director hiring manager they already know that we are experts in that segment so they don't need to ask us do you know how to solve this problem they already know we've already built enough material to 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 qualify our skills and abilities before we even get on the phone and I think that's where everything will get to. And I think if you look at even, the, it's interesting, the restaurant industry, the best restaurants have small menus. They do something very specific and do it well. Bad restaurants typically have really big menus and they keep adding dishes to, to compensate for the, the lack of quality. Right. Capture anything that anybody ever came in and wanted, but we didn't have. They got to have on the menu so they can please everybody kind of. And, and, and the thought to that is, you know, you become the international house of food and, and basically, yes, you have something that services everybody, but nothing is, is really worth ever coming back for. So, and, and, that, and I think a lot of times, you know, when you're talking about the service industry, I think a lot of times you get guilty of, oh, okay, we can do this. Uh, you know, we've done this. It's a little bit more to do this. And you'll say yes, because you want the revenue, especially at the smaller midsize. And then obviously as you get bigger and you have departments, you know, associated with delivering that solution, then it's a little bit less challenging, but smaller companies, maybe under 50, 100, that keep taking on incremental scope in, in their expertise, all of a sudden look at that and go, now we have to support selling, uh, uh, you know, and delivering across eight, 10 different areas. Your people all have to know how to sell that stuff. And it, it, it sticks out pretty quick for the people buying usually because they know the industry a little bit. They know the product some when, when the people they're talking to really don't know what they're talking about. 100% resonates. I, I want to take a, a quick break. Sure. Um, we'll be back in just a minute, get into some more uh, specifics on this stuff. I, I want to get some, uh, some actionable stuff for the, for the listeners here, some kind of do's and don'ts when, when marketing a, uh, a commodity and that kind of good stuff. So hold on one minute. We'll be right back. JB Commerce is a 14-year veteran of the affiliate marketing industry. We focus on driving incremental revenue through the affiliate channel for top-tier brands. We achieve this by bringing new and vibrant partnerships to each of our clients, big and small. JB Commerce adds an average of $10 million in three years for fashion, beauty, and skincare brands, all without stealing sales from your other digital marketing channels. You can find us at jbcommerce.com. 
Welcome back to the If You Market podcast, the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm here today with uh, Amir Borman, and we're talking about marketing to a commodity or semi-commodity. We kind of uh, just tore the concept of commodity, shredded it all apart and put it back together there in the first half, but uh, marketing with a, a commodity product. Um, so Amir, I really want to get into here in the second half some more of the kind of technical do's and don'ts, maybe some experiences that you've had of things that have worked and that haven't. You'd mentioned, you know, Google reviews being so key in the first half there. We talked a ton about brand and things related to brand, about expertise, finding a niche, content, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd mentioned briefly just kind of the the actual innovating, but that that is a little bit cheating to say, if you're a commodity, what do you do? Like become not a commodity? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That would be a different podcast, how to become not a commodity. There you go. Um, but so can you, uh, can you jump into some, maybe some examples of uh, things you guys have come across, uh, things you've been successful at, um, issues you've had trying to market the type of, uh, you know, just a, I guess as a reminder, they're a recruiting agency, uh, Elevano. Um, so very much a commodity product, regardless of how much better you are than other recruiting agencies of your niche, even almost on, on the surface, you're still a recruiting agency. Absolutely. You guys recruit specifically for. So we focused on uh, engineering, creative, digital. I mean, we do, we, we you know, recruit for recruiters as well. So we, we operate in a few different segments. Um, uh, you know, what's funny is we actually debated for a long time when we should start producing content. We talked about it a lot before we started producing content. We probably talked about it for a couple of years. Um, and I think in hindsight, we, we, we probably talked way too much and we should have done a lot more. And you should have hit record while you were talking, yeah. I, I <laughs> Probably, I think it was 2013, I turned to my business partner, who's my brother, and I said, I think we should market on social media and talk about the day in the life of a recruiter. And this was, you know, five, six years ago. And, um, and you get busy with the business. Like you just focus heads down and yeah. just super focused trying to grow a business. You really don't want to spend time doing something else. And I think at some point you start looking at it and going, how many customers can I affect? How am I going to tangibly get my message out broader aside from hiring, you know, traditional, maybe decade, 20 years ago marketing. And it's like, these are all mature technologies that are out there, social platforms. I think the number one thing that allowed us to, to get into actual producing content and, and talking about different aspects of recruiting is not worrying about producing the content, which is really uh, a crazy thought. But we were all worried about you know, what if the content's not good? What if it doesn't resonate? How do we know? Like, how are we going to produce? We just stopped. We said, we know what we know. We're going to document it and we'll, we'll test out different styles and different formats, but we only know what we know. Like I can't go talk about something I don't know. I'm going to, it's going to be pretty obvious to the people like we mentioned, I don't know about it. So if we just talk about what we know and we're confident in that and not worry about it being perfect. So yeah. I think, and I think, what if it is bad? If it's bad, it's bad. Content versus no content. You're, it's on the feed for, it's on the feed for milliseconds anyways. Nobody's, yeah. You know, you're learning to adjust versus doing nothing because what if it doesn't work? Then it'll never work. The enemy. Perfection yeah. is the enemy. And I spent, uh, I'm a perfectionist. So that, that really, really went against my nature because I was like, it's got to be perfect. I want all the you know, I's dotted. I'm going to keep waiting. And at some point it was like, 
all right, the grammar is not even good. We make spelling mistakes in the content. What, it doesn't even matter. Like I, I, it, the, the way people consume ties into this. People consume content so quickly that no matter how good it is, it's on the forefront for me. Like even the biggest news in the world, right? Prince dies. Michael Jackson right. dies. It's in the news for a day, two days, three tops. Depending on what else comes along. Exactly. And these are the biggest stars, icons of, of, <laughs> of generations. So you're saying put out something terrible. People will forget quickly. Put out whatever you feel comfortable <laughs> with. And, it's, and, and the, th- the problem is like, it's interesting. If, if you're talking about Instagram where there's a, yeah, I don't know, billion users plus, your content might not even show up on 99.999% of people's feeds anyways. Like it, you could repost the same piece of content probably for a year daily. It'd actually be an interesting experiment. If you reposted the same content every day for one year, whether or not it would actually have a normalized curve of, of likes throughout the year. And I bet you it would because there's such a big population to consume that not everyone's ever going to see it in their feed at that time. And then tomorrow, there's so many pieces on top of it, it's gone. You might actually get um, social media to start creating spam filters if you do that. I'm sure they have something like that already. That's what marketers, <laughs> marketers pollute every yeah. form of media that exists. It's been so a popular topic on the show recently. Marketers ruin everything. Marketers will, will yes, they will overuse whatever the tool is because that's their job. And, you know. We are gluttonous. We see something we yes. like and we just have to get it all. It's the tool of the day. So when that becomes and everybody's attention's there, people are going to invest more time and energy. So yeah, I, I, but I think, yeah, like you said, I, I think the number one thing that I learned heading down a path of making content was just to not worry about what it looks like and if other people are going to like. And I've had some people say some really nasty things online uh, in comments. And it's their opinion. They may not like it. They might like it. You know, I've had people say terrible things and I agree with them. I'm like, yeah, that was pretty bad. Thanks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've had people tell us terrible things in real life too. I mean, whether yeah. we do it online or in real life, it happens all the time. So I can't worry about uh, others' opinions. I mean, oh, yeah, sometimes yeah. family members. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But when it is terrible, you're like, uh, so I say to people every once in a while when looking back at stuff, like you should always look back at the content you made a year ago and think, whoa, that's bad. Yes. That just means I, I, you're much better now. Now, if yes. you're putting out the same exact thing and saying it's bad, and you're just then you're in a shame spiral or something. That that's actually bad. But yeah, you should be getting better all the time. It's practice. Something that's kind of, uh, I mean, content stuff. It isn't new, but something that's new to you. Yeah, you're going to get good fast, but only if you actually do it. So practice. I guess the uh, the first big tip here: re- repeatedly practice. So. So, so to your point, producing content and you repeat any single process as a human, you will get better at it. Whether you are, you know, it could be a broken process or you're really getting good at a broken process or it's a good process and you're really getting good at a good process. Either way, you're going to improve upon whatever process you establish. Like to your point, you should go back at markers and look back at what you've done and evaluate, you know, is this been a good trend? Should I change? So I, I, I agree with you. you. You will get better. Like I even look at some of the first podcasts I was on. I was like, okay, yeah, I thought I was really good, but you know, you, you slow down a lot more and it's more conversational. You realize that you've got time to have dialogue and, and, and you don't have to do whatever. So I think those improve and I think you become much more comfortable and 
I'm sure if we went back and we looked at the first show that a famous actor did versus the 50th show, yep. I'm sure that 50th show, they just are fantastic in it. So oh, yeah. we look at this podcast and the, the early episodes are, you know, I, I'm a bit of a perfectionist too, but we just got it out there and it's pretty horrific. Um, and now hopefully, again, hopefully in a, in a couple of years, we'll look back and we'll still be recording and then we'll look at this episode and say, wow, we could have done it. <laughs> I'm sure you I, will. I could have done I, so much better. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a skill. And I think, yeah, like producing creative content uh, requires a, you know, that, that desire to want to do it. And, and you know what? The other thing, honestly, that I've, I've learned is there are so many people that are available as resources to do the stuff that you're not good at that that you don't have right. to learn. Like I can't graphic design. I can't edit videos. I can't do any of that stuff. I, mean, I could, I could learn it, but the, you know, if it takes you, let's say, you know, $30 to edit a video versus it takes you four to five hours to do it. If that's right. the bottleneck to your day to produce content, there's so many people on Upwork, on Craigslist. There's so many people out there. Uh, Fiverr has a lot Fiverr. of great stuff. And you can just graphic design. Okay, you suck at graphic. Steal somebody else's. Go online. Find something that looks good. Find Cop- ideas. Yeah, know? find ideas. Oh, I like-, like that look. Let me make mine look like that. Hey, yeah, graphic design. You see this, this, this meme? I want something similar like this. Can you make it with like what? And, and they will do it. And that's what I've, you know, again, part of the stumbling block of getting going for us was, well, I, I really want to do it all. I want to control it all. And it's like, no. Stick to what you're good at. Stick to the topics, your subject, and then have somebody else help you. And that really just lets you go. Right. And then, like you said, you spend four hours working on this creative yourself and it's subpar. You could have paid somebody and just had it done good. And then it doesn't get the traction and you think, oh, this doesn't work. No, it's not that this doesn't work. It's that that doesn't work. It's that Absolutely. You didn't quite click right. You didn't quite get it just right. And over time you can get it right. Or you know, yeah, some of the things that they're going to take you way too long. It's not what you, what you specialize in to get right. Outsource them. And so we're, we're kind of talking very small business. Now, larger businesses have resources. They can yes. have a person on staff that handles certain things. Absolutely. So for them as a commodity, it's, it's more about just, you know, which direction to point the ship. They have the ship. It's just, where do we point it? What do we do with our time and resources? And, and what do we focus on for the commodity to, to market this particular product? Um, well, I think sometimes the problem that you see there at bigger companies is you have different opinions on where to steer the ship. They, they're, they're worried about the message at a company level versus at a granular level targeting a certain audience. And I think with social media, we can get pretty granular in who we target with messaging. So the companies that are really good at it and know how to get down to that audience and serve you something that's completely relevant to you versus people that are worried about you know you know there's a company brand there's an employer brand we need to be true to both of those and that's going to damage the actual end marketing initiative the the, the social media drive so i think bigger companies have different constraints i think when you're small mid-size i think that that might be an advantage in social because you can take advantage of it if you can get the founder this you know the president Right. Somebody who's who's the top of the food chain who has that expertise in industry, that's the person that's going to bring the most visibility. Versus if you're a thousand person company, that CEO probably would go. You want me to do a podcast? Yeah, the hell with that. So, right. like, can't we hire and uh, somebody who's yeah, uh, can we, you know, yeah. An, an influencer and, and, and have double. That's not a for me. Absolutely. But then that's what you can do. So you can have your expert, or you can hire an expert. But depending on your size, it's just knowing 
you know, which direction to go. But I guess the, the point uh, that we're both making here is you have to actually do it. You're, you're a commodity. You have to somehow get noticed. You have to build brand. You have to put content out there. Social media is awesome, really, because my company is a data company, Mountaintop Data. We provide lists to companies for their marketing campaigns. Um, that's a great thing. Companies need that, but um, slightly biased here, but they, uh, not every company can go that route. There's a lot of things you have to set up. You know, you have to be able to execute it somehow once you have that, all, all that information. Social media, the upside to that is it's just kind of a, a ready to go. It's, it's the fast food of, of marketing. You can just log on with an account and you're there and the whole audience is there and you can segment down to who you want to target and, you know, you, you can pay them money and you can get a message to those people within their, you know, they've got this, this closed environment that, uh, that they have the people within. Um, so in that way, it's, it's the new uh, radio and television. Um, it's easy. Yeah. Anyone can do it. I think that, I think it all ultimately comes down to the creative that resonates with your audience. Right. So I, I mean, they're there for them to actually interact with you. They might see it, so, so there is a component of brand that brand awareness that it might bring, but for them to actually interact with you, even if it's not creative, it's the content message that has to resonate, or it's actually the piece of art creative that resonates, but there's need, there needs to be something, either the message, the, the actual art to it, something needs to, you know, something needs to resonate to have somebody actually interact with it. Otherwise I think you're kind of missing the boat. And I think some of that is trial and error. You have to just see what fits. Yeah, you'd said something off the air that I wanna I wanna get back to. Sure. Um, you made a comment, uh, I, I believe when we were talking before about top of the funnel being all about them, and not about you. So we're talking a lot about content to get, you know, that the the commodity to break through to the audience with a commodity product. Um, I think that's a really important thing. So I just wanted to highlight that that when you're putting this content out there, it's not a commercial for your product. It's not a you know, a call to action. These people don't know who you are. It's you really need to just start to get them familiar with your brand. It's, it's, um, you know, you can't be hard selling people on your timeshare on, on social media. You have to put out content that's going to be relevant to the people that you're want to be in front of and get your brand in front of them, but it can't just be a hard sell pitch. I mean, this podcast is content for us. Sure. We don't talk about you know, mountaintop data and the fact that we have fantastic business to business contact information for sales and marketing campaigns. We almost never mention that. Um, we also do a pending and data cleaning. We don't mention those kind of things on the air because we're not trying to pitch those services. Um, you know, we're creating a product that, uh, that has value for the people who we sell to. And then that gets the brand out there, out there also. So I guess I've, I've said a couple of times before in this podcast, but you know, when they're doing radio shows back in the day, you don't turn on the radio and just hear a channel that's all commercials. You know, you have to have the content and we're creating the content. You can't think of the content as the commercial. You got to have a call to action every once in a while, but, but your whole piece of content can't just be a commercial. You have to actually have the, the content part of it. You got to have the Lone Ranger show. You got to produce that. Yeah, you're the friends episode. You're, yeah. you're, the, you're, the, you're the Game of Thrones episode. You've got to be the entertainment, the value to listen. Yeah. And, and typically, again, that goes back to if you have expertise in the subject matter that you're doing an interview with, you can have dialogue. It's not just a series of six, seven, eight, ten questions. You run through them. Thank you very much. Nobody gains much, but I mean, you understand marketing. It's a dialogue. It's, it's peeling back the onion, talking about 
difficulties and the audience will then it'll resonate that this guy understands my pain the number one most important thing that i remember from my consulting days is as soon as somebody starts shaking their head yes when they're listening to you whether in person or on the phone once they yeah, yeah. <laughs> that means they trust what you're saying and they believe that you could be a solution provider i thought you were gonna say it means they're not listening um, Maybe it could be you know, like, yeah, uh-huh. I'm done with this guy. Yeah, it depends which way the head shake. If it's a nodding up and down, typically, it's a, eh, I don't know. But um, I, I think for me, that's what the ultimate, that's my vision is when we're producing content, is there somebody that's going to look at this and go, they get the problem. They right. understand, if you understand the problem, they can then help to find the solution if they don't have one, or they can work with me to uncover the solution. But certainly if they can't even articulate the problem or help identify it, then what? Right, that's right. And that's where the expertise has to come into place. And then also the, uh, um, you'd mentioned entertainment also. It doesn't always even have to be expertise. If it's entertaining in the scope that that target audience is going to be interested in, whether it's because you're specifically targeting them or you know, it's a, a Dilbert comic or something like that for people in the office, they're going to find that interesting where you know, somebody in high school is, going to wonder why anybody ever would look at that um and aging myself a bit there i don't know if anybody even looks at Dilbert anymore uh, but yeah I, it can be entertaining or educational or you know helpful but uh, it's got to be something other than just uh just a sales pitch 100 um, i agree with that anyway i think we're running out of time here i want to i want to wrap it up really quick this has been great I think, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, just asking a bunch of form questions. I don't know if we hardly asked any questions here. Uh, uh, I don't think we did. Going That's my favorite. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Talk about something, just kind of we'll go with the flow. I love that dialogue. So where can people find you online? I imagine just put your name in uh, to LinkedIn. They can find your LinkedIn profile. How else can people reach out to you and reach out to uh, Elevano? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, if you, if, you, if you type in Amir Bormand on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, you know, Instagram, Facebook, all those places, you'll find some uh, handle for me. And then obviously, elevano.com uh, is my company um, and a Bormand at Elevano. Um, I'm, I, I'll get all those links to you, but I'm sure if somebody really wants to reach out, I'm sure they can find me. I'm pretty, pretty visible online now. Fantastic. And specializing in recruiting for uh, engineers, technical people, that kind of stuff engineers technical people creative uh digital um kind of all you know like i said we're, we're going to be narrowing but for now we're kind of a little bit broader and we're covering different areas well i want to thank the uh thank the listeners really quick for you know tuning in and listening uh please do follow us on social media give us uh good reviews uh, give us those uh, google reviews we've never mentioned google review on the show before i think so yeah let's see some google reviews out there tell a friend sign up on iTunes, all that kind of good stuff uh, on behalf of myself and uh, Carla Jo Helms. She's out today, but we'll keep her in here anyway. And the rest of the IFE marketing team and uh, Amir Bermond of Elevano, thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you market the shit out of it, they will come. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.